this is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later in this hour, what's it like to work at Amazon in the holiday season for half a million people who are employed worldwide by Jeff Bezos? Alex Press will answer this question. Also, remembering Amos Oz, the Israeli peace activist and novelist who died on Saturday, Amy Willens will comment. First up, today was the first day of the new Congress. Trump Watch starts right now. Well, today was the first day in six years that the Democrats are in control of the House of Representatives. For comment and analysis, we turn to Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's executive editor of the American Prospect and a regular contributor to the L.A. Times op-ed page. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John, particularly today. A very happy day that we've been waiting for for a long time. Uh, Did anything significant happen today in the House? Well, uh, a about 102 new members were sworn in, uh, and there were 40 more Democrats than there were, uh, uh, you know, as of last week. And uh, Nancy Pelosi is Speaker again, and there are two socialists now in the, uh, uh, in the House. I don't know if that forms a uh, formal caucus uh, or not, but uh, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Rashida Tlaib from Detroit uh, are now members. Uh, there are all kinds of firsts, and there are all kinds of interesting signs uh, coming out of the first day as to where this new Congress may be headed. Well, I want to start uh, with your Minnesota moment in the House. That's, of course, news from my hometown of St. Paul that you won't get from Sarah Huckabee Sanders. Another big thing happened in Congress today. Ilhan Omar, Democrat of Minneapolis, became one of the first two Muslim women in history to serve in the House of Representatives. And she's the first woman to wear a hijab on the floor of Congress in the 181-year history of the House of Representatives, despite the protests of a Christian pastor who warned that the floor of the House, quote, now, quote, is going to look like an Islamic republic close quote. Uh, Ilhan Omar came up in politics as a community organizer in Minneapolis. She worked on issues like hunger and juvenile justice. And when she arrived in the Capitol for freshman orientation, she ran into John Lewis, that congressman from Georgia and civil rights icon, and she burst into tears. Well, let's talk not about the House for a minute, but let's talk about the Senate, about Tammy Baldwin, the Democrat from Wisconsin, and what you call the dogs that did not bark in the night. Well, uh, I was struck uh, looking back on the uh, elections uh, of uh, of last year. Now, now that it's 2019, yes, uh, uh, there were some radical proposals that were made out on the campaign trail. Uh, most of which immediately got the predictable uh, Republican slapdown. But the dog that didn't bark in the night that interested me the most uh, was a proposal by Tammy Baldwin uh, to uh, pass, you know, she had introduced a bill that would uh, require corporations to have uh, about a third of their board members selected not by shareholders, but by their own employees, by workers, which is a version 
of what the Germans call co-determination. In Germany, any corporation which has more than 500 employees has to uh, split their corporate boards, actually, between uh, representatives of shareholders and representatives of uh, of, of their employees. Uh, Elizabeth Warren followed up on that later uh, in the year with a proposal uh, that was uh, essentially the same as Tammy Baldwin's, except that it called for 40% of the workers. But Elizabeth Warren was running for re-election in Massachusetts, and her re-election was never in doubt. Tammy Baldwin was running in a very purple state, uh, Wisconsin, uh, which had gone for Donald Trump, uh, and was uh you know uh, already being attacked the Koch brothers and and their their band had already uh, spent more than 4 million dollars on negative ads on her and they spent another uh, 11 million in the course of the campaign after she introduced this bill and they didn't say word one about it and i i think the reason they didn't say word one about it was that they thought that even you know workers uh, the the whole white working class which uh, has lent, obviously, a good deal of its support to Donald Trump. Actually, if they started to think about this idea, they might like it, which is not the sort of thing that the Koch brothers wanted to have even in the public discussion. So uh, Tammy Baldwin, uh, having what, under conventional political uh, analysis, would be kind of a glass jaw, uh, having p- uh, proposed yes. this semi-socialistic proposal, uh, actually, the right didn't bring it up, and that led me to think that there were probably a range of uh, pro-worker uh, policies that uh, the left could uh, could introduce uh, that the right would just as soon not have discussed and and would be feel kind of awkward uh, voting against. Uh, so, so let me ask. Made an issue of it. Yeah. So, so, so let me ask: worker representatives on corporate boards. Uh, how what what do we know about support among Americans for that kind of proposal? Well, it's not like there's been a lot of uh, a, a lot of uh, polling on it because it's in terms of you know other than people like me advocating it for years. <laughs> yes, uh, it, it, it's only last year that this actually uh, reached the level of a of a concrete political proposal. But there was a group called Data for Progress, which was uh, set up by a bunch of data analysts who'd worked on Obama's. Uh, 2012 re-election campaign that did do polling and found that it had 52% support and just 23% opposition. And wow. it, wasn't nor- or it wasn't just a regular poll. I actually uh, surveyed a, a very large number of folks and, and got results from every single, con- uh, every single one of the 435 congressional districts. And it actually led in 435 of the 435 districts. So um, wow. this, this suggested that uh, one of the uh, slow-to-emerge but really there results of uh, the, uh, the 2008 uh, uh, crash and uh, the very halting recovery that, that came out of that and people's growing awareness of these huge levels of economic inequality uh, is that they support stuff like this. Uh, it's not like there's any great love uh, for the, uh, the banks and corporations that are the major players in the American economy and people understand in American politics. Well, the Democrats certainly have moved left in recent years. The voters, and especially uh, in 2018, the elected officials, That uh, it's been very fast, really, and pretty amazing, for at least for old-timers like me. 
Yes, and or for an old timer like me who remembers that you don't have to have a long term memory to remember when uh, Kristen Gillibrand and Cory Booker decide two presidential, uh, likely presidential candidates, uh, were the darlings of Wall Street, and 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 now they both support Medicare for all and Bernie Sanders' ideas on full employment. Uh, I, I should also add that getting back to events of today, in her talk upon becoming Speaker again, uh, Speaker Pelosi uh, quoted uh, Justice uh, Louis Brandeis saying, we can have democracy or we can have wealth concentrated in the hands of a few, but we can't have both. And she went out and wow. made a big point about dealing with uh, economic inequality. So in, in a sense... Um, uh, you know, uh, Nancy Pelosi is famed for being a very adept politician, and uh, previously centrist Democrats running for president can also see where uh, the Democratic rank and file is headed. And so the whole party, at different rates of speed uh, and different rates of enthusiasm, has moved uh, to the left. How far to the left varies, uh, for you know, according to a number of factors. But yes, the whole party has moved to the left. On uh, on economics and uh, to a certain degree even on climate change, even though there's there's been pushback there. I, I should add that in her uh, speech today, the one committee that uh, uh, Nancy Pelosi referred to was this new select committee on uh, on on climate change, and uh, you're talking uh, referring conceptually, if not by name, to the so-called Green New Deal that uh, Alexandra Ocasio Cortez. And others have been calling for the party to uh, uh, move forward on. So you say the Democrats are moving at different speeds toward the left. Let's talk about where there is unity, where Democrats can come together in the next weeks and months. And after that, let's talk about where the divides can be found. Sure. Well, uh, obviously, campaign finance reform, which is one of their first. Uh, one of their first initiatives, uh, built by uh, uh, Representative Sarbanes of Maryland, to create huge levels of uh, matching funds for uh, candidates uh, who raise low-dollar uh, amounts. Uh, there's, I, I, I think, you know, the, the whole idea of a Green New Deal, which relates to regional economic development, which relates to infrastructure, all of those notions are sufficiently fuzzy. Uh, that some kind of, you know, halfway house on that can be reached. Some will want them to go further. I think they're going to push for a $15 minimum wage, and there will be some members from states where the median wage is barely $15. Yeah. They may say, no, it should only be 12 but certainly they'll, they'll, vote for, uh, they'll vote for raising it. And then, of course, uh, the entire uh, Democratic caucus uh, is is behind the notion of investigating Trump. Uh, not all of them are for impeaching Trump, but if there's a serious investigation, that may be uh, that may become inevitable nonetheless. Uh, so I think we're going we're going to see that. Then they want to do something on health care, and here there are some divisions. Uh, you know, uh, how far to go? Uh, uh, certainly, uh, a very large number of Democrats in the House uh, are committed to. Uh, Medicare for all. Uh, there's going to be huge uh, centrist and establishment pushback. Uh, uh, I noticed an op-ed online today from the Washington Post, which is sort of typical of that, uh, bemoaning the cost. Even there, though, I think there are 
some ways that uh, you can envision some coming together. Uh, my American prospect colleague, Paul Starr, has proposed something called midlife Medicare, which would simply lower the age of eligibility uh, for Medicare from uh, the current 65 or thereabouts to uh, 55 or 50. Uh, and Paul, Paul sort of made that proposal at two speeds. One speed is giving Americans the option to buy in and get a, with a high rate of subsidy. The other is simply like Medicare uh, already is, to uh, uh, just just extend it and, and have that uh, funded by taxes, which could be collected from uh, corporations, which would be save the expense of covering uh, their employees over the age of 50, and uh, there's a lot of money to be had there. Certainly the whole party uh, wants uh, uh, to, to create a uh, negotiations over drug prices, since we have the highest drug uh, prices uh, in the uh, in the world in this country, uh, in as much as uh, we're, we're the, about the only uh, major country which doesn't negotiate drug prices and set drug prices with uh, with, with the drug companies. So, um, you know, but this is, you know, I mean, there, there, there are halfway houses which uh, may, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I think uh, could, you know, command the support of, uh, of a lot of Democrats, uh, just as, you know, uh, uh, someone like Bernie Sanders, who is obviously uh, more than any single person, the guy who put Medicare for All on the map. Nonetheless, he was a, a fierce defender of, uh, of of the Affordable Care Act of of, of Obamacare when it came under attack uh, by the Republicans uh, in in recent years. And uh, I think the same kind of this is as good as we can get, so we will go for it. Uh, mentality could could uh, relate to the party coming to, if not together, at least uh, everyone stopping for a bit on, in in support of uh, a proposal like midlife Medicare. If you've just tuned in, we're speaking with Harold Meyerson of the American Prospect. We're talking about the Democrats taking control of Congress of the House today and the prospects for unity and the progress. Let's talk a little bit more about a Green New Deal. You know, the the biggest divide in the country is really between urban and rural America. Rural America, if you look at the map, is overwhelmingly, in, you know, supported Trump. It's kind of tragic since Trump isn't doing anything to help them. Um, what what about rural and small town America? Uh, what can the Democrats offer to help them that would actually, you know, have have concrete results in terms of a, a Green New Deal? It's easy enough to say, you know, there's a million jobs waiting for people to install solar panels, but you know, things are more complicated than that in most places. Things are more complicated than that. And one thing that's clear is the private sector uh, has essentially, it's a private sector that has primarily abandoned uh, rural America. Um, if you look at where jobs have increased, uh, the bigger the city, the more like the, the, the higher percentage of, uh, of jobs. Uh, and uh, there was a Brookings study that the, the two uh, sort of categories in there uh, list of population density where jobs declined were rural areas near cities where they declined uh, by 2% o- over the last 15 years and rural areas not near cities where jobs declined by 4%. Meanwhile, in the biggest cities, uh, the jobs had increased over that 15 years by 9%. So uh, the private sector is simply not there 
uh, uh, for non-metropolitan America. And the smaller the city, you know, it, it correspondingly is there less. Uh, in the past, uh, the federal government has uh, stepped into the left reach, most notably during the New Deal, uh, where uh, the Rural Electrification Administration of Franklin Roosevelt and the public power uh, uh, policies leading to uh, electrifying the South through the Tennessee Valley Authority and the major hydroelectric drams in the uh, in the western states were major development policies for those regions. I mean, you could envision uh, some forms of of uh, neo uh, CCC Civilian Conservation Corps in those areas. You could envision uh, solar and wind energy major investments uh, by uh, uh, by the federal government. Uh, you know, th- things like that. But th- th- this is not an e- this is not an easy problem. And even if the Democrats do come up with a kind of Green New Deal uh, that addresses some of the underinvestment in in rural America, they're going to need a whole range of separate policies, even for those big cities where jobs are increasing, because that's where inequality abounds, and that's where you have a, a, a professionals and uh, people in the tech sector. Uh, doing well, and then this huge, largely uh, uh, black and Latino uh, service and retail sector that, that's underpaid. Uh, some of whom can be helped by a Green New Deal, but you know others of whom uh, you're going to really have to help by changing labor law, by raising minimum wage and the earned income tax credit, and things like that. There, I'm delighted to point out that we have not talked about the 2020 presidential campaign thus far. We have not talked about the horse race. If you turn on CNN or MSNBC, it's all about the horse race. Uh, But I wonder if you would like to say a few words about where we stand. Well, there are a lot of horses. (laughs) Um, I mean, I, I, I seem to recall and occasionally watching a Kentucky Derby on television that when there are a lot of horses, they have to, you know, they have the starting gate, and then they put a supplemental starting gate next to the starting gate because there are too many horses. And that's pretty much where the Democratic field is at. I mean, I counted eight sitting senators, possibly nine, uh, who could run. Um, uh, I, I think seven of them are, are, are pretty much definites. There are four or five present or recently passed governors who could run. There are... a Two or three billionaires, uh, uh, from uh, Michael Bloomberg to uh, Howard Schultz, the founder of Starbucks, and Mark Cuban, who could who expressed interest in running. So, I mean, how do you deal with this? I mean, you could do this sort of the NCAA bracket version. You, know, you, you could have a billionaires uh, runoff, and they could go against, uh, let's say, center-left female Democratic senators, Gillibrand uh, mm. uh, and, uh, and Kamala Harris. Uh, and Amy Klobuchar, uh, uh, you could have the left primary uh, w- between Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders and Sherrod Brown. Uh, you know, I mean, it, 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 it's kind of bewildering. And, of course, the, the real problem is that, you know, if you have uh, 15 people, uh, uh, seriously, uh, serious candidates in uh, Iowa and New Hampshire and then Super Tuesday in California, which has moved its primary date up, um, you know, you're gonna, your winner is going to have 16% of the vote, mm. uh, which isn't, uh, isn't really a mandate. And, you know, you know, I mean, you could 
then narrow the field to two candidates who've been getting 15% of the vote each. I mean, it, it, it's not a great system. I have, it's, it's not going to happen, but I've been proposing a, a form of ranked choice voting. So, uh, you know, the, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren supporters don't wipe each other out. Uh, you know, that, that uh, uh, the votes get tallied in a way that uh, coming in, in second uh, is, is not the end of the world. Uh, uh, otherwise, I mean, uh, this could be a really complicated, gridlocked mess, uh, uh, and it well, could frustrate know, a lot of folks. Uh, you know, they could, if you remember the Republican primaries of uh, now more than two years ago, they had more than a dozen candidates. Remember that row of uh, of uh, all uh, older white men all wearing dark blue suits, all wearing red ties? It was kind of hard to tell who was who. Uh, right. Except one had funny hair and orange skin. Uh, the right. way they did it, as I recall, was they had this thing called the children's table uh, uh, in the media where the ones who polled at zero uh, were debated each other at two in the afternoon or something like that. Uh, is yeah, that, yeah. Re- I mean, that, 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 I mean it, there are really no good solutions. Uh, if you put them all on the stage and there are, you know what, 15 to 20 serious candidates, how much can they say in a debate that's not going to last longer than two or three hours? I mean, not much. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, not that plus which our debates tend to be, uh, you know, uh, people get remembered for zingers, which is not exactly, uh, the, you know, the, the Lincoln-Douglas mode <laughs> of discourse, which, yes. you know, there's two guys talking for seven hours. <laughs> um, uh, so, uh, I mean, you know, it, it, really, it really is a problem. Uh, and one other thing I'd like to bring up, that some people say we need a winner, a winner at all costs, and that means Joe Biden. Other people say we've got to go with the issues, we've got to go with the progressive agenda, and that means Bernie or Elizabeth Warren. Do, do you want to take a stand and, on and this? some people say we've got to go with charisma and yes. we go with Beto O'Rourke. Right. You know, um, you know I mean, it's, uh, first of all, anyone who knows for sure who's the, uh, you know, the strongest candidate against Trump, um, you know, uh, great. Tell me who to bet on in the next race. Uh, I, I, th- th- that is, you know, so unclear. By the way, uh, Diane Feinstein in, in, endorsed Joe Biden today, uh, which uh, is establishment gerontocracy at its best. <laughs> okay. I just throw that out there for whatever it's worth. Establishment um, gerontocracy at its best. You heard it first on KPFK. Yes. Last thoughts, so, Harold, before we before we close out this segment. Oh, well, uh, I want to get back to um, uh, today as the first day in Congress. There are some, some really hopeful signs. Uh, uh, the, the Democratic Party has a lot of new energy and a lot of, uh, of uh, progressives, young progressives, better yet, uh, who are raising issues which were completely off the table three or four years ago. Uh, and they're way overdue for consideration. So you have to be somewhat hopeful uh, despite all the obstacles that they're going to encounter, uh, that uh, we're you know beginning to come back to uh, uh, the path we need to be on. Somewhat hopeful, Harold Meyerson wrote about imperatives for Democrats for the new issue of the American Prospect. It's dated winter 2019. It is essential reading. Thank you, Harold. Always great to have you on the show. Great to be here, John. Thank you. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK with Trump Watch. Next up, we remember Amos Oz, who died on Saturday with Amy Willens. That's in a minute on KPFK, when Trump Watch continues. 
It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK, streaming at kpfk.org and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Later in this hour, life for Amazon workers in the holiday season. But first, Amos Oz, the Israeli peace activist and world-class novelist, died on Saturday. He was a hero of ours, a guest on this show several times. For comment, we turn to Amy Willens. She's a longtime contributing editor at The Nation, former Jerusalem correspondent for The New Yorker, and she wrote a novel about Palestinians and Israelis. It's called Martyr's Crossing. Amy, welcome back. Thank you, John. Well, the two-state solution, a Palestinian state next to Israel, has lost support everywhere these days, but Amos Oz never gave up arguing for it. What exactly was his argument? As I recall, it started with a critique of the occupation. Yes, so when he was 28 years old and just uh, returned from fighting in uh, 1967, and the occupation had begun, he turned around uh, two months later and wrote a piece for Davar in Israel uh, attacking the occupation, saying that they should begin immediate negotiations with the Palestinians to get out because, he said, the seeds that were being sown uh, by this occupation, both among the occupied uh, population and among Israelis, were no good, were dangerous, and uh, it, it needed to end. Uh, by the way, P.S., that didn't happen. <laughs> by the way, that didn't happen. Yeah. Uh, in you, you, you wrote a beautiful piece about Amos Oz for the nation, and you start out by saying that in order to understand his politics, you have to understand what you call the timing of his birth. Please explain. Well, you know, he was born nine years before Israel became a state. So that was the earth-shaking moment of his childhood, and he was a real believer in the state of Israel. He never questioned that. He was a patriotic Israeli. In fact, as I wrote in the piece, you know, he taught me the lesson that a leftist Israeli is still almost always some kind of a Zionist, and he was indeed a Zionist. Um, But his thinking about Israel and its future led him to various progressive uh, points of view, most notably Uh, peace now, and um, negotiating with the Palestinians for some kind of peace. And then, of course, the two-state solution as that kind of peace. So he was part of the the, uh, first wave of Zionists, the secular, uh, socialist, uh, European uh, wave of Zionists. And, of course, they're the ones who carried out the ethnic cleansing of Palestinians in 1948 and who who occupied the West Bank after 1967, Uh, you know, from the Palestinian perspective, how different were they really from people like Benjamin Netanyahu? Uh, What would Amos Oz say about that? I think he would say from the Palestinian point of view as a lived experience, not that different, but as... um, as people searching for a way out, different. So that um, there was a hoped-for solution that could accommodate freedoms and a political entity, if not an entire state, 
for the Palestinians under the Oslo Peace Accords, no matter how corrupt you may think they are, and certainly they did not survive history, right? But uh, under Netanyahu, it's simply, you know, turn your back on them, keep them occupied, mow the lawn, as the Israelis say, cut down the Palestinians every few years, uh, literally, you know, with uh, bombs, etc., as in Gaza. And... Um, no solution is envisioned for the Palestinians except occupation. And the 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 current uh, rulers of Israel are, uh, well, let's say they have the view that God wants the Jews to live on the West Bank of of the Jordan. I I think that uh, Amos Oz uh, didn't share that view. He wasn't a very godly man. In fact, you know, if you really look at what he was saying most of the time. He was complaining about the radicalism of the religious, and uh, he had no quarter for that kind of thinking. So the idea of Eretz Israel as something that God had foreordained, which Benjamin Netanyahu pretends to believe in or claims he believes in, uh, that, that was not part of Oz's thinking. Uh, yeah, I, I've heard him say, uh, uh, well... If God said the Jews should uh, live in in the uh, uh, the West Bank of the Jordan, He didn't say when. It could have been two thousand years ago. It could be a thousand years from now. He didn't say in two thousand nineteen or whatever the Israeli uh, year is now. Right. He didn't operate in man years. <laughs> <laughs> if you've just tuned in, we're speaking with Amy Willens. We're remembering Amos Oz, the Israeli peace activist, the novelist who. Uh, who who died over the weekend? Uh, you know the the big issue always was uh, with the Israelis that the Israeli right and some American Jews would say um, would complain that Amos Oz never uh, blamed the Palestinians for all the problems that Israel uh, faces. What uh, he of course he was very familiar with this uh, critique of his politics. What did he say to it? Well, he said, yeah, yeah, I mean, you can look at them now in the condition where they are and where they've been put and say that they're responsible for not, you know, properly caving into Israeli demands, etc. But you have to look at how they got to where they are, both the ethnic cleansing, I don't think he would have called it that, but the uh, sweeping out of the people uh, when the state was created, um, and then the occupation. I mean, what are we talking about? What are the Palestinians supposed to do? Of course, the Palestinians, it is true, according to Israelis, they never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity. But the opportunities they had been shown by the Israelis were not always opportunities that they thought were appropriate to them. Of course, uh in the and another thing was that when he would be asked, I mean, I I asked him on this program, you know, is the Palestinian Authority strong enough to be able to make peace with Israel? And he would throw it right back and say, well, is the Israeli government prepared to make peace with the Palestinians? And he always had that similar answer, maybe it won't happen now, maybe it won't happen soon. That just <laughs> means we'll have to f keep fighting for it for a while longer. It was a... It means, 
it means that Amos Oz never set a date for it. He didn't say whether it happened 2,000 years ago or in 2019. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, the, you know, one of the most amazing things to me was how how resilient he was uh, in spite of losing almost every political battle since Oslo uh, and facing all kinds of criticism that he was a traitor to Zionism. And uh, mm-hmm. how, did he, how did he remain so... Uh, so resilient in the face of both history and his uh, his the conservatives in Israel. I think he felt that um, the best thing for Israel was for Israel to do the right thing, and that justice was appropriate to the state of Israel. That he believed in ideals for the Jewish people, even when they were running a state, um, and and felt that. That road uh, would make the least dangerous path for Israel. So I think, as I said earlier, that you know his idea of justice for Palestinians was deeply entwined with the idea yeah. of a future for Israel. Yeah, it wasn't just that he wanted to be nice to Palestinians. Absolutely, that that he wasn't some kind of crazy Christian <laughs> <laughs> or any other kind of crazy religion. He was just practical. And and uh, you met him. You uh, uh, you know we, we interviewed him here when he would come through L.A. on his various book tours. But you met him in his famous basement in the Negev <laughs> Desert. Uh, tell us what yes. what he was like uh, in his native habitat. Well, he's it's weird because he's he was arguably the most famous writer in Israel. Certainly internationally, he was the most well known. Yet he was off in this hinterland that was basically in Nowheresville. Uh, you had to go through Beersheba to get to it, and then it was in the it was truly in the desert. So there, it was like a subdevelopment in the desert. It wasn't very kingly. Of course, in his own home, he was very uh, uh, royal, <laughs> very welcoming. Very, you know, he was a very charming person. There's a reason why Amos Oz is so well known internationally. He knew how to greet. Uh, foreigners, his English was flawless, but with uh, a, an accent that was sort of charming. And, you know, he could show you his office in a way that wasn't utterly egotistical while still proving, basically, that he was the reigning auteur of Israel. You know, we've... T- it was very fun. <laughs> it was very fun. Yeah. Um you know, we've talked about him here as a peace activist, as somebody who believed that the occupation was destroying the the soul and the political future of Israel, uh, and that's why Israel should end the occupation. But mostly he was not a political activist. Mostly he was a novelist. Tell us what he was like as a novelist. Well, this was why I was drawn to meet him and speak to him. His novels are incredible works of art, but they also, and and I think not always very consciously, uh, are about the state of Israel and about experiencing Israel in every guise that you can as a person living there. You know, he's like the great American writers. Uh, no matter what your story is that you're telling, you're also showing what the culture is. And that's what he did in Israel, and they're just magnificent. The one he was first famous for, My Michael, is like a brilliant nightmare uh, told from the point of view of a woman who seems like she must be based on his mother, 
and her, you know, nighttime runs through the streets of Jerusalem with two Arab youngsters. It's just an incredible book. And FEMA is a wonderful book about an older couple. I mean, the, the characters are so lively and intelligent, and yet they're doing the most mundane things in life, like, you know, chopping salad and buttering bread. So how big a loss is this for Israel? As I've said, he was often caused called a, a traitor by right-wing Zionists, right. but, but, you know, for you and me and people like us, the thought of an Israel without Amos Oz is, is, is not a happy one. Well, you always like to have someone who will act as the conscience of a nation and do it in a public sphere. There are plenty of Israelis uh, militating or working for uh, some kind of way out of the quagmire, um, but he was a known figure of faith, someone who could be relied on to uh, make a pronouncement at an appropriate time. So I think it's very sad to lose that and to lose that kind of historical figure who came out of the Ashkenazi Jewish intellectual elite of Israel, and uh, which is now uh, falling away, and whom you might say, yes, is responsible for everything that came after, but they're not like the, the harsh, harsh, harsh right-wingers who run the country now. Amos Oz, a hero of ours, the Israeli novelist and peace activist who died over the weekend. Amy Willens wrote a memoir of him, including her visit with him uh, in the desert, uh, in the Negev. Uh, read it at thenation.com. Amy, thanks so much for talking with us today. Thanks, John. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, and this is Trump Watch. Next up, working for Amazon in the holiday season. That's in a minute on KPFK, when Trump Watch continues. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK, streaming at kpfk.org, and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Next up, what's it like for the half million people who work for Amazon worldwide, especially in the holiday season? How do they get all that stuff to you on the day after you order it? For that, we turn to Alex Press. She's an assistant editor at Jacobin and a freelance writer based in New York City who's written for The Washington Post, Vox, N Plus One, and The Nation. Alex Press, welcome to the program. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Well, there's a genre of YouTube videos I learned about from your new piece at The Nation made by people who work at Amazon warehouses. What are these videos like? Yeah, so these are really dark watching for late at night when you can't sleep. These videos, you know, there are, I don't know how many there are, I've watched dozens of them, but they're usually made early on when someone has taken a job at one of Amazon's fulfillment centers, um, and they, you know, are like any other YouTube video, you know, low budget filmed in someone's room, but describing what the process is of working there. And the intent of these videos is seems to be from almost everyone I've watched to inform anyone who might be considering a job at Amazon what it's like, what is the routine, is it mindlessly boring? Most people think, 
yes, it sort of gets to you that you can't listen to music, that you can't kneel down. Um, but after a while, they all start to sort of blur together. And as I write in the piece, the, you know, not unexpected follow-up is that this is a really hard job. And so a lot of people's next video is why I left Amazon. And they've, they don't make it very far um, as far as how long they're staying there. The turnover is really high at these places. Well, when I was young, there used to be a job called Christmas Temporary. This was at department stores when we had department stores. Of course, the department stores have all been replaced by Amazon. Amazon doesn't have Christmas Temporaries. What is that job called now? So now it's called a seasonal associate. And 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 what season is that? Is that the baseball season? <laughs> no, that is, of course, the holiday season. So now that Amazon is how we order almost everything, not all of us, but many of us, um, over the holiday season, you know, of course, Amazon's orders are ratcheted up. So they hire another 100,000 or so extra employees for what they call peak season. So that's around Thanksgiving time through Christmas. Um, And so during that time, there's not only this additional workforce, but then permanents, as they're called, people who work year-round, sort of are asked to work certain um, mandatory overtime through hours shift. So Amazon staffs up. So those, even though the, de- the department stores aren't as around as they used to be, uh, a lot of the people who would have taken those jobs are now seasonal associates at Amazon. And there's one seasonal associate as, at Amazon who's particularly noteworthy uh, in print, not on YouTube. Tell us about her. Sure. So the um, book I reviewed for The Nation recently is a first-person, semi-fictionalized account of a woman named Heike Geisler. So she is a German woman who's a very successful novelist in her own right, and like many writers, couldn't get by on the money she was making from writing and from translation work. So she went to work in an Amazon warehouse as a seasonal associate um, a few years ago in Germany. And so this book is what she produced that is based on her time there. And it is, yeah, it's a really remarkable, hopefully we'll have more accounts, but she may be the first that's written about this experience. But Heike Geisler is not your typical Amazon uh, warehouse worker. Actually, I'm supposed to call it a fulfillment center, not a warehouse. Uh, She's an accomplished writer. Right. So in a certain way, it's a very odd person to be giving us this account of a very hard job, right? She is culturally bourgeois. She is an elite novelist. And yet, like I said, what drove her to work there is the same thing as any other person who's working in this warehouse, which is she as a kid, she couldn't make ends meet, so she needs help. And this is the only job that she can find. And so this is what leads her to work there. And part of the tension of the book that makes it, you know, really interesting is she's coming to grips with the fact that she is, though she may be a successful writer, and be different culturally in a lot of ways from sort of the stereotype of an Amazon fulfillment center worker, at a very base level, she is exactly the same. Yeah, you quote her uh, saying that as an Amazon fulfillment center worker, you are, quote, you are generic. You are generic in in quotes. Uh, Let's talk about, that's a powerful idea. Let's talk about that for a minute. Sure. I mean, the tension of this book, and if you've ever worked a job that's anything like a a manual labor job in an Amazon facility, you know, regardless of your personality, your life history, very quickly you realize that you and everyone else must 
exist to the same rhythm of the factory. So you don't get to choose how you behave, the amount of time it takes you to eat, what your preferences are. You're reduced in a way to, you know, what I what she says in the book is, we are like robots. You know, we are just tools. Our hands are just tools. We have no voices. And so very quickly, all of the sort of big ideas we have about our personalities are rendered pretty mute by the base necessities of a job like Amazon. But can't uh, a seasonal worker who's a writer think of this work as uh, as research for their creative efforts? Like, you know, David Sedaris did that diary of being an elf for a department store Santa, what, 25 years ago, and it made him world famous. Sure, and, and Geisler clearly does that, especially at the beginning of the book. And again, it should be clarified, though the book is largely nonfiction, there are fictionalized bits, but the narrator very much seems to be Geisler, right? And so the narrator describes how she's thinking of herself as doing research, how she's playing disguise. She's, you know, the Amazon warehouse outfit doesn't fit her right, the vest doesn't fit, and so she pretends she's playing dress-up. But very quickly, she realizes that, you know, her she can't think about things in this removed way that sort of keeps her from psychically acknowledging that she's now been I think what, for a lot of people who work these jobs, feels like you're rendered immobile as a person, right? You become a machine. And so part of the tension in this book really is her adapting to the pace of the work and very quickly losing all of the little individual movements she had, she had used to keep herself distant. So she goes from being acting somewhat different or refusing little rules to no longer having the energy, both mentally and physically, keep up that act and so she just becomes a worker if you've just tuned in we're speaking with alex press we're talking about what it's like to work at at, at amazon especially as a seasonal associate uh at a warehouse i mean fulfillment center um tell us a little bit more so I can picture this. Uh, you're, you, you, so, you, somebody has ordered a bunch of stuff. You walk up and down the aisles. You put the stuff in boxes. You deliver the boxes to the places the boxes go. Actually, there's a lot of rules about that Amazon requires you to follow. Uh, tell us about a little more in detail of what the work regime is in an Amazon fulfillment center. Sure. So as much as it seems like we might be able to figure it out on our own, you know, part of systemizing a sort of machine-like routine is there are many different parts of this assembly process. So people have different titles that are all very specific to Amazon. You know, there are pickers. There are all these things. Pickers are the ones who go through the aisles with the machine telling them where to pick an item, and then they must bring it to this sort of bucket conveyor belt. Then there's someone who is at the bucket who checks the packaging and makes sure it's all right and, and takes the system and inputs this, the item to check. But in this interesting way that really comes out in this book, people are very much reduced to the rules and the machines that they must follow, right? And so the irony, of course, like so many of these jobs in the past, is that if you adhere to all of the rules, you really will fall behind because you have a very high quota of how many items you need to you know, deal with every hour at these jobs, so people start sort of taking all these items at once rather than individually and putting them in boxes. So there's this constant speed-up process that you're subject to 
just like in the sort of old visions of the factory work that, say, old Marxists were, were talking about with speed up and Taylorism. Um, but yes, Amazon, it, part of what's so interesting about this book is that it's translated from German, of course, and it was very hard for the translator to even figure out how to process these words. Hmm. And yet other words that Geisler was subject to were from the American, because Amazon, of course, is this U.S. company. And so there's this weird shifting of terms and meanings and what a rule is that is both transnational and also very hard to communicate across, I guess, borders or countries. Well, surely the workers at an Amazon warehouse are full of dreams of resistance, of sabotage, of uniting to fight back. Uh, what, what, does, uh, what, what can you tell us about that? Sure. So it's, as I say in the piece itself for the nation, um, Geisler's narrator talks about, she fantasizes as she's being, say, sexually harassed by a manager or forced to work while sick. And all of her coworkers are, of course, regularly working while sick. There's a door in the facility that won't close right during the winter, and so everyone starts catching a cold, but they can't afford to take days off. So Geisler fantasizes about resistance. She imagines what would it be for her and her coworkers to refuse to work in these conditions, and yet she never acts. And what's interesting and really what is, I think, the most important thing that's happening within the world of all of these workers worldwide right now is that people are starting to organize and resist while working in these facilities. So um, Geisler's narrator, of course, as I say in the piece, even goes to a picket line at this warehouse after she has left her seasonal associate job, um, and there is a strike happening. And the piece came out just the same week as the first unionization campaign at one of these centers went public in New York City at a Long Island facility. So these jobs are both incredibly difficult to, to really get the energy and the emotion to resist because they're exhausting. You can't get enough time to sleep or to eat, so how could you possibly organize? And yet, people are doing it, which really does speak to the fact that there is only so much oppression and exploitation that a person can put up with before they will find the people with them and they'll start building something that's more humane. Well, we've emphasized, and many people emphasize, that Amazon is a new thing. Amazon has revolutionized uh the world. It didn't even exist, uh, you know, a decade ago. Along with the, revol the revolutionary transformation of marketing, uh, would you say Amazon has created new forms of work? Well, certainly the when you read this book, Geisler's uh, new book, or just about any of these accounts by journalists that have gone either undercover at Amazon or have interviewed current workers, I've certainly interviewed a number of them, it doesn't sound very new, right? So yeah. some of the process is very new, and yet, you know, I quote Marx in the piece. We're talking about the alienation of people from their labor and working people to the bone. I mean, all of these YouTube videos that people make are about their feet ache and they have to go to the hospital or they die in this facility from a heart attack. This is very old, and I think that's really an important takeaway is that if you look beyond, the, you know, the remarkable kind of, technology and place that can get your package to your door within two days, if not sooner, what we're seeing is very, very old. And I think people should maybe not rule out old forms of dealing with exploitation of labor. 
Um, and certainly I think that is an important part of Geisler's book, is really bringing you back to a very classic problem of labor. Excellent point. So we've talked about, about resistance. Um, of course, the people who take these, these um, Christmas temporary jobs, seasonal associates, are doing it because they need the money, as you say. Uh, and one of the things that they would like, or at least some of them would like, is to get a regular job there, not to just work as a, as a temporary during the holiday season. What does it take to get a regular uh, uh, job at, Am- at an Amazon warehouse? That's a very good question. And it is part of the, you know, the real pain of these jobs is that it's very unclear what it takes. You're subject to, you'll see all different accounts by different workers whether it's in their videos, whether it's in Geisler's account, or journalistic reviews sort of of the Amazon workplace, you're docked in certain places for taking too many sick days, which will count against you, right, if you want to be a shining star that is then offered a permanent position. Um, There are other things like, of course, going on above and beyond your quota. Now, the quota is already incredibly high, so this is a sort of self-exploitation that really can cause very serious harm. Again, Amazon has people dying in these facilities, um, you know, on a fairly, there are certainly hospitalizations happening very often at these facilities. Um, So part of the state of uncertainty and the real psychic violence that's happening is that you don't exactly know because your manager can always say, well, it's up to an algorithm, whether we're going to need more staff, even if you're the best of the best as far as your job performance, none of that's a guarantee. So it keeps you on edge, and it keeps you pushing yourself above and beyond really what the human body should be subjected to. And um, I don't think anyone, maybe Amazon PR would tell you there's some certain rules in place, but when you speak to workers, it's very unclear what's required to, to get that job. And last, let's talk about the law that Bernie Sanders has proposed to deal with uh, Amazon. What, what is it called? Stop Bezos Act, I think, right? So Bezos is, I believe, an acronym in that act. Yes, B-E-Z-O-S. Um, right. Do you remember what it stands for? I off the top of my head, actually. It, stop, stop Bezos. Stop bad employers by zeroing out subsidies. B-E-Z-O-S. What does that mean? Right. So the Sanders, the proposed bill, um, is in part this sort of, it's a recognition of what happens at these, these massive employers, right, that pay incredibly low wages, even for full-time em- employees. So many of these employees are then on, say, food stamps or other social services and welfare um, provisions. Now, a lot of people have in the past, and now Sanders as well, framed this as a term called corporate welfare. Yeah. Right? So it's an attempt to invert the shame that is and stigma that many people attach to welfare and say, no, it's the employer that is really, you know, getting one over on the American people, is making us pay for these social services when really they should be paying their workers more. Now, there are criticisms of that approach versus others, but certainly as soon as Sanders proposed that act, which was, of course, you know, to have the title it does, generated a bunch of media coverage, was very, you know, was effective in that Amazon not only at first started putting out statements in response, sort of downplaying the state of of these workers' lives and the amount of people that are in dire poverty who work in their facilities, but also then 
did increase their minimum wage that they're providing these workers um, with a number of provisions in the small print that really uh, speak to how little we should trust Amazon to do the right thing ever. But certainly, I think, you know, Sanders and and everyone else, including the Fight for 15 and whatnot, should really, um, regardless of the details of his bill, um, there definitely is some, uh, it's partially his his reasoning um, that caused these raises to happen. Um, so whether that bill is going to be implemented or not, who knows, but at least it already has increased the pressure on Amazon. Stop bad employers by zeroing out subsidies. Stop B-E-Z-O-S. Stop yeah. Jeff Bezos. Alex Press, her article on work uh, on the Amazon assembly line appears in the new issue of The Nation magazine. You can read it at thenation.com. Thank you, Alex. Thank you so much for having me. Now it's time for news from my hometown of St. Paul that you won't get from Sarah Huckabee Sanders. Garrison Keeler is selling his St. Paul bookstore and leaving town. His bookstore, Common Good Books, is a huge operation near McAllister College. Uh, he is also putting up his gigantic mansion on Summit Avenue for sale. Uh, and he confirmed that on Wednesday that he and his wife have left St. Paul. They are leaving town. They have moved to Minneapolis to a two-bedroom apartment. Uh, he was known for having a huge uh, library at his mansion on Summit Avenue. He's giving his library to his alma mater, Anoka High School. Uh, he did get in trouble uh, during the Me Too uh, era. Uh, he lost his show, his show and indeed the archive of his show from Minnesota Public Radio. He's now testing the waters. He performed several shows at a place called Crooner's Lounge in Fridley, a suburb, during the past couple of months. Uh, and he's supposedly uh, working on a musical. So big news in St. Paul. Garrison Keeler is selling his bookstore and has left town. This has been your Minnesota Moment, a special feature of, of Trump Watch. Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank my other guest, Harold Meyerson, talked about the Democrats taking control of the House today. Amy Willens remembered Amos Oz, who died on Saturday. Thanks to our engineer, Gary Baca, our producer, Renee Reynolds, and thanks, as always, to Rye Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. I'm John Wiener. Tune in again next week at the same time on the same station with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Thanks for listening. Thank you.